Hey, it was a really good time of worship, um, just to have that great mix of cultures and, and different things. Uh, you might not have picked it up in, the, in the, the, the blessing there in the last song, but we had the, the Hebrew scriptures and then we had the wonderful um, part of uh, uh, the prayer of um, St. Patrick, you know, fourth century Irish thing, the words of Jesus as well, and some good old American hoedown. <laughs> you know, uh, all brought together just to worship God and give thanks to God. That's great. Um, can't watch the final scene of Steven Spielberg's film Saving Private Ryan without crying. In fact, I wanted to make sure I got the words of that uh, um, in that scene correct, so I watched a YouTube clip of it in my office, and I had tears running down my cheeks and, you know, stuff coming out of my nose. Um, and uh, Lynette walks into my office... <laughs> I go, it's all right, I was just watching a movie, a, you know, movie thing. And of course, I couldn't find any tissues. It's just. But the film is about a squad of US soldiers who land on Omaha Beach on D-Day in the Second World War. And they're sent to find and bring home safely Private Jack Ryan. Ryan's three brothers have been killed, one in the Pacific and two on D-Day. And the war office decides that they can't allow one family to sacrifice all four of their sons. And the film's based loosely on a true story. So Captain Miller and his squad go to find Ryan. And when they do, Ryan will not leave his unit until the objective that they have been given is secured. So Captain Miller, played in the film by Tom Hanks, and his squad participate in that battle. And most of them are killed. They are sacrificed for Ryan. The last scene, and spoiler alert here, is of a much older Ryan coming with his family to the cemetery in Normandy. He finds Miller's grave and kneels, kneeling before the cross that marks that grave, says that each day he has tried to live up to the sacrifice that Miller made for him. Then he turns to his wife with tears in his eyes, and he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And you know, as a movie, it's, it summarizes the sacrifice of that D-Day generation uh, that they made for us to live in peace. And one comment on the YouTube clip that I was watching of that scene said, he, Ryan, may not have found a cure for cancer. He may not have invented the long life light bulb. But he was a good man, a good husband, and a good father. And as Ryan is kneeling before a cross, I couldn't help but think of the Bible reading we had this morning where Paul turns from talking about how we live a new creation life, not only because of the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ, but also his resurrection as well. He turns from talking about that to applying it to the closest of relationships for the church at Colossae within the Roman household. Wife and husband, children and parents, and what is foreign to us, Slave and master. And G.K. Beale in his commentary brings it across to us today by, by saying within family and at work. 
And of course, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, a church that he never visited, or at least we don't have a record of it. Colossae is a city in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to encourage the new Christians in that city and warn them against people who would try and say they needed something else as well as Jesus for salvation. Something else alongside Jesus so they could have a fullness of life. Something else alongside Jesus for eternal hope. A sort of Christ plus religion. And Paul asserts the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus, that Christ has done all that's needed for them and for us to have a new, full, and eternal life. Therefore, we should live that out. And our series of calls is called Colossians, Christ and Christ Alone, which picks up Paul's affirmation and encouragement. And leading up to the passage that we had read to us today, putting it in context, Paul had talked of the death of Jesus and the way that that had taken care of our old sinful lives, that we had died with Christ. And because of the resurrection that we have been raised to life with Christ, we are part of God's new creation. And in chapter 3.11, Paul says that this means that all the social barriers, all the hierarchical structures of the time have been broken down. That there's no longer any distinction between Gentiles and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians or savages, slave or free. But Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And of course, from a more well-known and very similar passage in Galatians 3.28, Paul had also said, neither male nor female. In Christ... There is an equality of all before God. We have all been made brothers and sisters in Christ. You can say amen. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) And then in verse 12, Paul goes on to speak of how we should then live as God's new people. He tells his readers and us that we are to focus on kindness, patience, humility, forgiving one another, adding to all these things the qualities of love, that we are to encourage and teach and instruct one another, to be thankful to God, and finally that all we say and do should be done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the passage that we read out today, Paul applies that to the fact that Christians in Colossae, in first century Roman society, uh, actually lived in a very structured and ordered society. They lived within a very patriarchal society, where status mattered and was strictly enforced, predominantly in what's known as the Roman household code. Okay? In Roman society, there was the expectation that there would be order. The emperor would keep order on a wider societal level. and That's why he had lots of soldiers. And in households, it was the patriarch's role, the the, um, head of the household's role, to ensure that his household was in order, that his wife, his children, and his slaves were kept in line, that those of a lower social status... And in those days, that meant women, children, and slaves were kept in their place. So again, what does this new creation look like when you live in that environment? 
How were people to behave then when their primary relationship had changed? And now, because of Jesus Christ, they were equal brothers and sisters. Now, we're fortunate that we have Paul's teaching on this. And not only in this passage, but also an expanded version of this teaching in Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9, which as we work through this text, uh, I'm going to mention as well. But before I start uh, looking at the text, let's just have a couple of quick comments. The first is that unlike other renditions of the Roman household code, predominantly from Aristotle, and Aristotle had the idea that because men were, you know, more masculine and, and tougher that they should be the leaders, you know, but Paul is not in this passage concerned about authority, status and headship, but Christ-likeness and love. He not only addresses people in power positions, which is what Aristotle does, he addresses everyone, those in society with power and those who are powerless. He places them on an equal footing. For all of them, their primary relationship is with Jesus Christ. So let's look through the passage verse by verse. Wives, submit to your husbands, and I'm I use the NIV when I do my study, so that's what the words here are from, as unto the Lord. It's hard for us to hear this passage as empowering. We tend to forget that it's only in the last hundred years, and predominantly in the industrialised West, that equality between men and women has been so widely accepted and valued, right? However, it turns what was an expectation of women in their day into a voluntary act, a choosing to do this rather than it being imposed on them. In Ephesians, Paul had started his discussion of the Roman household code by talking of the Christian value of mutual submission, that we are to submit one to another. It changed it into a Christ-honouring posture as well as limiting what it means. As unto the Lord. Speaks about Christian theology, Christian virtue, Christian ethics. Not to be a doormat. Not to be forced to do things that go against a woman's Christian beliefs and values. It was inviting and encouraging Christian women to live a Christ-honouring life within her marriage in Roman society, in that social structure. Husbands, love your wives and do not treat them harshly. Again, you see, this is not about authority or headship. Rather, it's a relationship based on love. In Ephesians, Paul goes further to explain what it means by love. He says, as Christ loves the church. It's a sacrificial love, a giving of oneself, a love that puts the other first, that considers their needs, them as a person. Don't treat them harshly in the Greek has the idea of not being an oppressive dictator and speaks against violence and deprivation, domination, abuse and exploitation. You know, to care for their wives, to love their wives, wives just as they have been loved by Christ. You know, Christ who builds the church up, wants to see it come to fullness and wholeness, lacking nothing. 
Paul encourages Christian husbands to live a Christ-honoring life in his service within marriage. Children, obey your parents in everything as it's pleasing to the Lord. Again, it changes being into a powerless position in their society in a way of showing Christian love and commitment. Again, pleasing to the Lord acts as a balance. It says that the, you know, that's the, the emphasis of what it should be. In Ephesians, Paul also talks of honouring your mother and father as being the first commandment to have a promise. And while we may not see it here in the English, Paul is referring both to the children of the family and also to the children of the slaves in the household as well. He's putting them on equal footing. Now in our time and place, the time that children are under their parents' roof has changed. You know, children leave home a lot earlier than they used to. But I think this passage implies the Ten Commandments' lifelong honouring of your parents. And I know many of you know and are experiencing that as you and they grow older, that what that means changes. But it's children, Christian children, living a Christ-honouring life in the way in which they relate to their parents. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will be discouraged. The Good News translation uses parents to make it more relevant to modern leaders. But because we're talking about the Roman household code, it's fathers as the key authority figure. And Ephesians again expands this and adds a positive and Christ-orientated part. That parents, fathers, are to bring their children up, instructing them and teaching them of Christ. You see, parents are the primary religious educators of their children. And what we say and how we act, how we treat our children, is how they will learn about Jesus Christ. And it speaks of the role of the father and mother as nurturer, living a Christ-honouring life as a parent. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when they are watching to curry favour, but with sincere heart and reference to the Lord. Oh, sorry, reference reverence to the Lord. And you know, Paul's longest instructions here are for slaves. You know, he's addressing the, those with the least social status in their time. He's giving them the most of his time. Because in Roman society, slaves had no freedom, no choice, no status. And Paul here admonishes them to realise that their true master is Jesus and they serve him. And he gives them three reasons why they should do this. Firstly, because they work because in Christ they have an inheritance. The Good News Bible says reward, but it's more important to hear the word inheritance, which was a totally revolutionary idea for first century slaves. Because, you see, first century slaves did not inherit in fact, they were normally property that was passed on from one generation to another. But Paul tells them to work because they're part of God's family, because they will uh, receive the same inheritance that all people do uh, who follow Christ, of fullness of life in Christ, an eternal life with Christ. Secondly, they, like their masters, equally serve Christ. 
And so work, instead of drudgery, demand and obligation, uh, now becomes worship. They serve the Lord. Their work becomes worship. Again, it serve Christ adds as a limit of what's acceptable. You know, for example, sexual exploitations of slaves were ripe in the first century. But you know what? That goes against serving Christ. They have the ability to say no. Finally, they should do that because God punishes the wrongdoers. And there's no favoritism. Free, master or slave, all are responsible to God for their actions. So slaves are to live a Christ-honouring life in how they work and live, serving their household as brothers and sisters. Finally, masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair. That's revolutionary here. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the Christian idea of what is right and fair revolves around the fact that in the church, slaves were to be seen as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be treated as family. Uh, Paul had had to write to the church at Corinth to tell them about, tell them off about a very practical outworking of the problem between slave and free. Their worship services revolved around a shared meal. And what would happen is the rich and the, the free and the masters would get together and they'd have a slap-up meal and they'd eat till they had their full. But the poor and the slaves couldn't get there till they had finished their daily tasks. And when they turned up, there was no food left, so they went away empty. And Paul tells the church, it should not happen. Your brothers and sisters in Christ... Treat each other equally with love and care. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> got to get back to it here. Yeah. And that brings it back to, to what we've got here. You know, the idea of fear and, and just is that they are treated with dignity, not exploited. That they receive um, what they need for their practical um, needs. Uh, their financial and material needs should be met. And you know, I think this idea of equality before God is brought into play as masters are reminded that they have a master in heaven whom they serve. And remember Paul's favourite way of talking about himself was, I am a slave of Christ's. And maybe, just maybe, the seed of the abolition of slavery movement lies as a distant hope in passages like this. And you know what this does is it really turns the Roman household code on its head. It turns it from being a structure about power and authority and patriarchy into an opportunity for Christian care, Christian love, Christ-like service and commitment to one another. It's revolutionary. It's quite subversive. Okay, well, let's move from the then and there to the here and now. And it's possibly not as easy to do as you'd think. Okay, the first reason is that people try and bring the Roman household code across from the then and there to the here and now. 
And that they say that that's God's understanding of how households and families should be. You know, they focus on authority and headship and hierarchical structures. And I actually think it's really hard to do that without changing slavery to talk about employee-employer relationships or ignore it altogether. So they might say, oh, you know, uh, slavery, we don't have that these days. But the rest of it just comes across without an actual fact being changed. Whereas they forget that Paul's focus is of the new creation way of living, showing Christ-like love between equals. In fact, Paul would approve of our modern Western understanding of marriage as a partnership between two equals committed to loving each other, submitting to each other, providing a good and safe environment for children to grow up and be nurtured and prosper. But I think he'd say the same things. I think he'd say the same things. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Because matriarchy or the dominance of a wife over a husband, is equally outside what a good Christian marriage should be. Now, I had to ask Chris if I was allowed to say this before I said it. Men need more than just a two-word vocabulary. I was just kidding, okay? They, they need more than just, yes, dear. You know? In Christ, it is about Christ-honoring mutuality. Mutual submission one to another. He would definitely say, husbands, love your wives and do not treat them harshly because sadly we live in a time when spousal and family abuse is at an epidemic. And this whole Roman household code thing has been part of that in the church. We need to hear it again and again and again. Husbands, love your wives as unto the Lord. In our society, we need to hear it again and again. Husbands, love your wives. Love them. As Christ loves the church. We also live in a time when marriages are almost a disposable commodity. And the admonition to love and serve one another needs to be heard more than ever. The best metaphor I heard for marriage came from... uh, the foremost Christian marriage counsellors in New Zealand, and it was that marriage is work. And the only other better metaphor that they could come up with is that marriage is hard work. (laughs) But you know what? I can't think of any greater work, any more wonderful work, than in actual fact investing love, service, care, forgiveness, commitment, compassion and yes passion into someone and receiving that kind of love in return if we work at that marriages work it's the kind of nurturing love that lays the foundation for nurturing and bringing up children Paul would also be pleased that slavery as an institution has been outlawed although you know we always need to be on watch and diligent because, uh, you know, of the growing influence of slavery again in our world. It will not go away. People will treat other people as commodities rather than people. We've got to be on guard. Paul's words about fairness and justice need to be heard by bosses and employers. 
You know, Christians, Christian bosses need to be reminded that they have a boss in heaven. And living wages and good conditions are part of their Christian witness. Likewise, workers and employees need to be reminded and encouraged to see work as unto the Lord, not simply done when they're being watched or to curry favour. You know, what we do in work, whether we're in you know, a leadership position or an employed position, should be seen as worship. We do it unto the Lord. Let me finish with another movie analogy. My mum used to love um, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire movies. Yep, I can see there's some people here who, equally who do. And you know, it wasn't because of their complex, thrilling plots or their great, incredible acting, but rather because of the great dancing. Gerald L. Sitzer, in his book, Love One Another, uses Fred Astaire and his dance partner, Ginger Rogers, as an illustration of Christ-like love in social orders like the Roman household code. He writes of an interview that Ginger Rogers gave after Astaire had died, where she was asked, what was it like dancing with him? He's so good, she said. It didn't matter who led and who followed. Stitzler reflects that there was a fluidity between the two of them, a seamlessness, an elegance, as if two people were dancing as one. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I might be on thin ice by saying that one. (laughs) Thank you very much. Sitzler um, goes on to say and apply it, Astaire and Rogers manifest in dance what God wants all of us to experience in life. He intends human relationships to be healthy, harmonious and whole, so that regardless of the position we occupy on the social order, we will not be aware of who follows and who leads, who has more power and who has least. You see, it's like with dance. It's about grace. It's about loving grace that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the encouragement that Paul gives for us to live out this new creation life that we have and how we relate to those who are closest to us. We pray that you would help us in our families and our work in those closest of relationships to always reflect that Christ-like love to one another. And Lord, I know that there are people here today who have been hurt and abused, who have found themselves uh, bruised and, uh, yeah, because they have... uh, been in situations that haven't reflected that Christ-likeness. And Lord, I pray that you'd come. You'd come and you'd minister to people by your Holy Spirit. You'd bring healing and wholeness. You'd restore and bring new creation life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.